Suspend your disbelief. Let yourself be led down a path into the world of the paranormal, where ghosts, shadow people, cryptids, aliens, and all things supernatural dominate. Immerse yourself in a dimension of ominous trepidation with your hosts, Dan, Danny, and Rachel. Welcome to the Phantom Faction Podcast. Welcome to this edition of Phantom Faction Podcast. I'm Danny. I'm Dan. And I'm Rachel. Uh, here we are together again and uh, another special guest all lined up. And today we're hopefully going to hear about some really interesting Sasquatch stories. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our guest today uh, hails originally from Ohio. And as a young man, he's had a couple of interactions or sightings. Two books that we'll talk about briefly or, t- or we'll talk about very soon. Tracking the Stone Man. West Virginia's Bigfoot and the Appalachian Bigfoot, which I believe is a new, fairly new book and is doing quite well on uh, Amazon. Uh, he's also been a guest on Finding Bigfoot, the, the popular TV show. And he's a member of uh, BFRO, which is the Bigfoot Research Organization, which was founded by Matt Moneymaker. And uh, we welcome Dr. Russ Jones to the Phantom Faction. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Just going through your, your quick little bio there. Um, there always seems to be some sort of catalyst to everyone's. Um, interests in in bigfoot like usually you just don't wake up and say i'm going to research this thing and head out into the bush uh you've had a couple of counters in ohio which uh doesn't it wouldn't seem like it would be a, a hot spot for sightings but it is uh, we've had some other uh, uh bigfoot enthusiasts from ohio can you tell us about your your first encounter and we'll go from there yeah you know um ohio is actually the fourth most common place for sightings Number one is Washington, then Oregon, then California. And that kind of makes sense because if you think about how a creature such as Bigfoot would have got here, it would have came across uh, the Bering Land Bridge, um, you know, from Asia, and it would have came into North America. And of course, you would expect most of the sightings to be on that side. And as um, it spread across the country, you know, after territory and game and mating and everything else, uh, somehow or another, Ohio has a bunch of sightings. And, you know, it has the largest Bigfoot conference. It has the most Bigfoot conferences, probably has the most Bigfoot researchers in the country of any state. For whatever reason, Bigfoot's a big deal in Ohio. But, you know, when I grew up in a hunting family um, in the 70s and 80s, uh, Bigfoot was not a big deal. It was not well known. And when I had my first couple of encounters, I had no idea what I was even dealing with. But um, my family, we all trapped, we all hunted, we ran coon hounds, we ran rabbit dogs, we dug ginseng, we were in the woods all seasons. And um, I was New Year's Eve, we had gotten about four inches of snow. New Year's Day, it was a beautiful sunny day, really crisp and clear, but it was real cold. And I was out with a guy that was in the service and um, running rabbit dogs. And I don't remember whether I had two or three dogs with me that day. And I came along a hillside and there was a, a cave up above, but you couldn't really see it. It was just one of those that I knew was there. And when I came along the side of the hill, I saw a barefoot human footprint. It was not any larger than a normal person's, but It was literally crisp, clear, and it just happened. And so I thought that maybe a vagrant was living, you know, out in this uh, remote area in this cave or something. I walked up there and looked to see if there was clothes or if there was, um, you know, a fire or something. You know, it was apparent that whatever was in there was in there to weather that storm the previous evening, heard me coming with the dogs and had left. 
And that guy and I looked at those prints for a long time um, and then just went on. You know, we just really didn't know what to think about it. And then later that summer, my, I was uh, fishing at a remote beaver dam. And it's not one that the public knows about. We had found it uh, about a mile back in this wilderness area when we were running our dogs. And it was a real sneaky place. So I know my uncle and I were both wearing pistols and quietly fishing on a beaver dam. And I was maybe... 40, 35 or 40 yards from the other bank, maybe not quite that far. And it was brushy over there. And I heard something walking down through the brush and I glanced over at my uncle and could see he was looking as well. And then I started hearing something that started screaming very monkey-like and started shaking branches. It lasted about 20 seconds. And um, it's funny because in retrospect, we didn't know what it was, but we just kept fishing. You know, we were in the woods our whole life. We weren't concerned. We were raised that everything in the woods is more afraid of us than we are of it. And later that year, Leonard Nimoy in the 70s had the show In Search Of. And I saw the episode In Search of Bigfoot and I got curious. And largely it shaped my whole life since then. I had found, um, before I left for undergraduate, I had found prints two different times, um, mostly when I'm out hunting or fishing or something like that. And, you know, I had been back to that beaver dam, I mean, probably a hundred times fishing. I used to set turtle hooks for snapping turtles. Uh, All these times I've been back there, I never had anything happen, never, you know, had any suspicions or anything like that. But I was just back there again last week because even though it's not quite the same and the beaver dam's gone, you know, I'm still drawn to that place because as a lifelong outdoorsman, something happened to me that I couldn't explain and I needed to go back there every now and then I'll just pull and walk that mile back in there and sit around dark and just listen. And so what happened then was, you know, I went to undergraduate for four years. I went to doctor school. That was another five. I moved to West Virginia. It was, you know, maybe an hour and a half from where I grew up in that southeastern Ohio region and always followed everything Bigfoot. I read all the books that came out. I was always interested in. And I saw that in Ohio, they were having this conference and it was just a couple hour drive for me. So Jeff Meldrum, the anthropologist from Idaho State University that's on TV a lot was speaking. I'd read his book and I thought, you know, I'm going to go hear him speak. And so at that point, you know, they would have maybe a couple hundred people there, whereas now there's five or 6,000 in a weekend that would be up there for it. It's an enormous event. And uh, so I went up, I of course didn't know anyone, listened to him speak. And uh, on my way home, I decided that I saw the BFRO about 10 times a year was having an events across the country where, you know, you paid about, I don't remember, three, four, five hundred dollars and you sign non-consent agreements and, um, you know, you had to be interviewed. And I didn't know anything, of course, about it, but they were having one fairly close to me. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go. And if they're weird, I'm leaving. And if they're not, I'll go. And back then, Matt Moneymaker used to be at all the expeditions. And, you know, Matt and I just hit it off and became friends. And I started doing all the reports for the group in Ohio and West Virginia. And that's what started it all for me. And that was over a dozen years ago now. And um, in that meantime, you know, I wrote one book called Tracking the Stone Man. That's what that looks like. Uh, Four years ago, it did well. It was awarded the best regional book that year and sold about 5,000 copies. And then this year it got released, the Appalachian Bigfoot. And it's been number one on Amazon for 16 weeks now. And I guess people are interested in Bigfoot more than, 
you know, we knew, I guess it's kind of the monster that, you know, I see you and I are similar age and, you know, I guess it's the monster that everybody grew up with and everybody's curious about it. And everybody's always asking me all the time, you know, I, I have a large practice here and, and they'll say, what do your patients think, you know, about, you know, you being interested in Bigfoot and you're always in the woods several times a week. And, you know, you write these books and you go on TV shows and, you know, I think people are compelled, but, you know, I live in Appalachia and Appalachia, everybody has a story. You know, our state fairs and all of our little county fairs all have storytelling. People are interested in it. Um, If people haven't had something happen personally, they know somebody that's had something happen. And nationally, the belief rate is about a third, around 33%. But in um, Appalachia and the Pacific Northwest, you know, it can be as high as 60 or 70% believe that there's a chance that something, you know, could be out there. And so I have a farm in Ohio. I chose my farm based on history of Bigfoot sightings. It adjoins a park. You know, I live in West Virginia where I can be in the woods someplace remote in about 15 minutes. And so it really has shaped a lot of my life and how I live my life. And I'm very consumed with it. A lot of people think, oh, they're interested in Bigfoot. But then when they talk to someone that literally talks to witnesses every single day, and does something Bigfoot related every single day and is in the woods several hours a week, they realize that they're interested, but maybe not quite as much as other people. So I would say that there's probably a hundred of us in the United States and Canada that are doing uh, legitimate Bigfoot research based on, you know, scientific method that we're out there. Of course, there's probably, you know, I don't know what the number is, but a large number of people that are going out that, um, you know, are interested and are trying to have an experience that maybe aren't really doing research so much. Um, you talk about people at, at your practice, you know, what they would think, that sort of thing. Um, what about family and friends? Like, you know, like, do they ever say, like, take you aside and say, look at Doc, like, what's going on here? Like, you're obsessed about this thing that we can't even prove that exists. That's that's walking around the bush. And, you know, you're speaking, you know, every waking minute you're out there and knocking on trees probably and uh, looking at the ground and looking up in the trees. And it must be, uh, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, it takes a lot of time for them to wrap their heads around it, but I guess you may have uh, swayed some people as well with your findings and your research and your, and your uh, attitude towards it. You know, when I wrote the first book, my belief went through the basic history of it, the basic uh, evidence that had been brought forth It made it so that it was readable, that a reasonable common man at the very end would just say, you know what, maybe, who knows, but you know, it's cool that people are looking at it. And at that time I had, I think I had interviewed around 500 witnesses by then. And then of course, now, by the time I wrote the second book, you know, I said in the beginning that in all fairness, I came to the point where I was certain that there was something that people were seeing. There was some type of phenomena that existed and, um, you know, and I felt like it was fair to say that, but I can tell you that in general, that it would be hard for someone to be with me an hour and not be intrigued, you know, or the people that are in my life that, you know, are sitting on the couch while I'm talking to a witness and just, or it's on the speakerphone in your vehicle, you know, listening to you talk about the people, to the people that, you know, are rangers and troopers and biologists and teachers and, you know, just all types of different things that um, they don't want anybody to know who they are. 
They just want to report what they've heard or what they've seen. And people are compelled. And there's a lot of people that are having an experience with something. I don't, um, you know, I know that you were asking about, you know, where you go out and do this stuff. When I go in the woods, it looks like somebody that's hiking, probably, you know, I don't yell, I don't beat on trees. I think that the people that go out at night are trying to have an experience. I've already been through all that. I'm just trying to get answers now. So now it's more about, you know, I have over 40 game cameras. It's about managing the game cameras, trying to come up with a way, a solution to fool something, um, leaving things in the woods that would try, I would try to get a primate to be intrigued by, whether it's toys or colored rocks or you know, peanut butter or different things like that, that you're trying to have something, you know, interact with you. And 99% of the time I'm in the woods, I'm just walking in the woods and nothing happens. You know, it's rare that something happens. Most of the time you're just hiking and it's good for you and it's relaxing. And, you know, and I've always done it my whole life. So I, you know, I still enjoy it. Now you mentioned the word primate. Um, I know the Bigfoot camp, uh, you know, usually gets split between, those who think it's a giant hominid, you know, bipedal, gigantopithecus. Yes. And then, there, and then there's the other uh, camp that thinks it's more paranormal, supernatural Correct. in nature. It yeah. travels via portals. Yes. It can, just, it can cloak itself. What, which, which way do you lean? So we call the supernatural or paranormal group the woo group. Mm-hmm. I'm in the flesh and blood group, which believes that you know, before we jump to some other type of thing that we should probably, you know, go with the thing that seems to make, you know, the most common sense to the easiest thing to do. And that would just be um, the flesh and blood group. Now, inside the flesh and blood group, there's all kinds of people that believe in different things. I think that Gigantopithecus is easy because it existed. We have fossils from it. It was in Asia. So it had access to the land bridge. You know, it there was over a million of them, even though there was a million of them, we have a jawbone, a partial jawbone, about a thousand teeth is all that is left of them, even though we had a million. A lot of times people think, you know, oh, where's the bones or whatever it happens to be. But honestly, it takes a lot of times around 10,000 years for bones to appear. The Bering Land Bridge was only open 10 to 20,000 years. So it's possible that, you know, there may not even be any. And of course, the area where a Bigfoot would exist, you know, is largely in deciduous forests, which are known for uh, acidic type soils, which are not conducive to that type of thing. You know, and there's whole lectures that uh, some of us do, you know, I've done a lecture just on game cameras for an hour, a whole lecture on where are the bones for an hour, you know, different subjects like that. I mean, it's amazing the amount of time that a lot of people are spending, you know, enveloped into the phenomena. Do you view these Bigfoot Sasquatches as uh, an intelligent being? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this line, you know, how do we define intelligence? You know what I mean? Like, Like, is it a intelligent being that is able to be in the woods and not be found easily? Or is it just a fact that there's so few of them and they're rare and they're raised kind of knowing where people go and where people don't go and where the food would be at different times of the year? Um, You know, I'm not sure how we define intelligence. I know I made the argument in the first book that maybe the best way to find it is to try to define the level of intelligence and go from there. But I don't think it's an easy question to answer, you know, that way. Um, I think that certainly they're not a stupid, dumb ape that's running around the woods, because if that was the case, then we'd have a lot more game camera pictures. You know, they'd probably be in museums and zoos. 
uh, that type of thing. But, you know, you have to remember that largely most of the people that are doing the research are citizen scientists. You know, like I said, we probably have, you know, a hundred, a handful of people that are doing legitimate research and they're doing it on a part-time basis. All of us have jobs. The scientific community hasn't been interested in it largely because we used to have the ecological argument that only one mammal or species would fit in each little group. And because that Bigfoot would not fit in that group, well, now science has moved on from that because we found out just in the last decade that, you know, all of the homo different groups and Neanderthals and Homo erectus um, Mm -hmm. all lived a lot of the time together, sometimes interbreeding, you know, what we used to think was this tree with these branches. Now we've known like as a big bush and a lot of them live together and things are changing. Now we know that um, Neanderthals were dormant part of the year. We just found out this in the last year. Um, now we know that some of them existed as recently as 10,000 years ago. We used to think that Gigantopithecus was a vegetarian. Now we know that's no longer true. So the science behind it is evolving, but it's evolving largely aside from the scientists. You know, they're not really participating, but I think at some point something will happen, whether it's someone kills one. You know, I personally have interviewed four different witnesses in Appalachia that have had one clearly within gun range that they could have shot uh, that did not shoot. So someone will either shoot one or a truck will hit one or whatever it happens to be. And then I think that you'll see The scientists, which have been reticent to be interested in it, will come out of the classrooms and they will have all the best equipment. They'll be paid to be in the woods full time and they'll be able to go places where everyone else are not allowed to go. You know, uh, reservoir areas that are, you know, feed cities in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, there's a lot of sightings on outlying areas like that. But I think the government will allow those people to go in. But it's funny. I, I heard not long ago on PBS, I guess it would be uh, Matt Moneymaker and a anthropologist were debating. And when I listen to the anthropologists talk about it, they make the same arguments that they made 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And the arguments are antiquated. And the reality is they're really not interested in Bigfoot or whatever Bigfoot may be. And so they say the same things that all of us exasperate with because we've already moved past the arguments. They'll say things like, well, would there be enough food for something like that? Of course, I'm a certified master naturalist and many of the biologists and um, the different wildlife professionals. You know, we've already answered those questions and moved on past it. But at the end, I know that um, the anthropologist says, well, there's just no evidence. But, you know, the reality is that there's a lot of evidence. There's just not a body, but there's other types of evidence that, you know, have been presented that people are accepting. Well, how do you how do you say that, you know, a thousand pound grizzly bear couldn't be able to feed itself and keep it, you know, the energy going? (laughs) They, yeah. they eat, they'll eat mice, right? If they need yeah, or how to. about uh, elk? You know, elk are vegetarians, you know, and they're extremely large animals. So weigh a thousand pounds and they're able to get through the winter without any type of hibernation or anything like that. I'm really not sure why, you know, science is resigned to sit with the status quo. You know, it's like they say that it, it can exist and because it can't exist, they're not going to address the issue or whatever happens to be, but um, it's frustrating. I know John Bennernagel, which was a PhD and, you know, one of the few academics that was really involved in Bigfoot. He wrote a, a really good book, a treatise, if you will, to the scientists 
telling them why they should be interested in this. And John passed away in the last year or two. And I know that it was always a frustration for him that he just couldn't get people to take, take it seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe it's a citizen scientist. I mean, you know, you mentioned the woo aspect, you know, where you have people believing that there's portals and that, um, you know, just, just different things like that. The Bigfoot can cloak and Bigfoot can disappear. And I think that when the scientists read that stuff, they're, they're horrified, but, you know, the reality for me is that we've never had a time when there's fewer people in the woods and people are afraid of the dark. They're afraid of the animals. They're afraid of getting lost. They're afraid of snakes. They're afraid of all kinds of things. And so they're just not out there as much. And so when they make a trek to the woods for a day, a month, a weekend, a month, or, you know, maybe they're camping for a week or something in a state park, if they don't find something, even though that they believe, I think that there is a natural tendency for them to start to believe, you know, that something's natural or unnatural or paranormal rather than just accepting that, you know, maybe they're not as good as their forefathers were in the woods, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems much more natural to me, you know, and of course they'll talk about, um, they get zapped, you know, they believe that Bigfoot has infrasound and, you know, we do know that lions and tigers and elephants, Whales use infrasound largely for communication, but there's some um, belief that the lions, the great tigers and the things like that will use infrasound just to stun their prey just for an instant to get them to them quicker. But some of the Bigfoot people that believe in woo would say that they were in the woods and you'll see it all the time in the internet and on the Facebook groups, they'll say that they got zapped. But when you really think about it, I mean, I think that, you know, they're sleeping in a strange place. They're not used to being in the woods at night. And it sounds much more like anxiety than anything else to me. And of course, that would be the easiest explanation. And I would argue the one that we should all accept until proven otherwise. See, I went uh, the way of the woo, so to speak, because I've actually experienced uh, or spoken to people who have had that that uh, overwhelming uh feeling of terror come over them yeah. and and the one gentleman was was in uh, a fishing boat just just in the bay outside of his cottage and uh he peeled all all the skin off the palms of his hands because he was so terrified uh trying to get the boat going and you know like just for someone to, to sit there and you know having trees pushed down towards the boat and and right. the, you know recordings of uh, uh the owls um, you know, the, the mimic sounds that they have yeah. which, that turn into the screams and the growls. So oh, there, there is a lot of, uh, I, I won't say evidence, but there are a lot of people who do encounter like the strange lights. Uh, I myself have, have witnessed these, these strange orbs going through the trees, all sorts of weird phenomena. So who's to say that they're not, you know, connected somehow with, uh, you know, the universe in a way that, that normal people wouldn't be or, you know, you often hear people talk about when they're in the, when they're in the bush looking for Sasquatch, or or not even. Everything goes silent. Yeah, the birds stop, the crickets stop, and it's like someone just turned the mute button on. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mystery around it, and and I guess you have to look at both sides to be uh, because we don't know know everything about them, right? Yeah, you know that's for sure. I think that we need. It's important to take all the cases. And to listen to everybody with an open mind. So it's all documented because you don't know how it's going to fall in the end. But to listen to you and what you say, though, to me, it sounds like much like our forefathers would be. You know, they had a sense when something was watching them. They were good in the woods. They were able to anticipate when uh, something was around or whatever it happened to be. And 
So it sounds like a normal, I think that some of the skills or the inherent abilities we've had, we've lost because most of us are sitting at a desk all day or, you know, have a job inside and we're not outside hunting for our livelihood for our family or our substance. I look back and of course I've had an awful lot of time in my life in the woods and my family has as well. I just haven't had anything that I couldn't explain yet. Um, I mean, I thought that it was a pretty big deal for me to hear find footprints on a number of occasions and to hear the screams when I was younger, but compared to everything else that some of the people believe, that's not very exciting. Have you had a sighting, an actual sighting? You know, I believe that I had one two years ago. How I go about it is I keep track of when I'm in the woods or my cameras and stuff. And I have a book, a notebook that I fill out and I just call it, you know, for fun, a calendar, I keep track of different areas that people should be in based on the historical sightings or things I see on my game cram or, or don't see. Because although, you know, there's very few pictures that anybody would accept as being a Bigfoot on game camera, what I've come to realize is that many times on my cameras will have periods of time, whether it's several days or up to a week, where all the game on my um, cameras will disappear. And if you follow areas very closely, you have as cameras as many as I do, you know, you'll be in one park and I'll know that there's, you know, 18 or 20 deer that are in this general area and I'll see them almost every single day on the cameras. Well, then all of a sudden you'll go through a period of say five to seven days where you will have nothing show up on your camera. So something's in there disrupting the game that's in that area. Now, you know, could it, could it be something else? I mean, we don't really supposedly have mountain lions here. And if we do, they're rare, probably rarer than Bigfoot. But, uh, you know, could it be something like that or whatever it happens to be? But I keep track of that stuff. And so I was at this park. It had rained a, not the, a lot the night before. And so when I got there, there was nobody there. And um, when I started in some of the trails to get up higher on the hills, you know, I could see in the mud that no one had been there, uh, you know, even earlier than I was there. And it was pretty early. Well, when I got up on the hill, you know, my dog Shade's walking with me and he's always off leash, but he's a lab and he stays within about 20 feet of me or straight in front of me all the time. And I got to a point on a hill and there was a pawpaw patch right in front of me. Do you guys have pawpaws up there? Uh, we might. I just might just have a different name for it. They're like a fruit that people say they're green and they look kind of, they taste kind of like between a banana and a kiwi and they're native to Appalachia in particular, but um, they fall to the ground. They're really not good to eat until a frost gets them. And then it's converted to sugar and all the animals will gobble them up. Hmm. But they're finicky. Some years you'll have hardly any. And other years there'll be thousands and thousands, you know, in different areas. But anyways, they're, uh, they grow off a single rhizome, which means that, you know, that's a common root and all these trees pop up that are around. And, you know, it's maybe in an area the size of, you know, a house, maybe twice that size. And so when I glanced over there, I saw in my mind a hiker with a backpack and it was buff collared all the way down from top to bottom. And so as soon as I saw it, I whistled the shade, you know, probably two seconds he's to me. I clip him on and we're moving not more than 10 seconds. I start walking as soon as I do the trail turns and I realize what I saw was off trail. And so I was suspicious and I ran to that area because there's a ridge right there and I can survey the whole area and there was just nothing there. But what I've come to realize now, and since that time, now I carry largely almost all the time in the woods, I have a GoPro on me um, that I'm using and I just have batteries in about every 45 minutes or hour, I had to change the batteries out. But I've came to realize that if you spend a lot of time in the woods, 
your brain wants to quickly categorize that based on any experience that you had based on your history. So I saw something instantly, my brain said hiker, and I saw that. I've had times where I've been in the woods. Last year, I was in the woods and I heard this loud tree breaking in my mind. I thought, oh, it's too loud to be a tree break. It's probably nothing. And I just moved on. And so now I'm really conscious when I'm going in the woods to remind myself, you know, not to take anything for granted that I hear or see to make pause every time I do. And I hear it time and time again from some of the Bigfoot groups that are around the country. Like there's a big one that's well known, has a lot of doctors and rangers down in Texas. And they talk about, you know, they saw something upright moving. And they just assumed that it was somebody in their group, even though they knew that they keep track of where people are and they knew that it wasn't, but their brain instantly categorized something. And so I think that there's many people that have had a Bigfoot experience that don't realize that they did. They don't recognize the Bigfoot behaviors and the noises associated with it. And so going back to the question, I think I did. I certainly didn't get the one that I envisioned. You know, I find footprints. I have hair, I have all this stuff, I have sketchy um, game camera pictures that aren't good enough to prove anything. But cumulatively, for me, it's compelling, you know, because I think that something's out there after, you know, so many witnesses. Your first book, Tracking the Stone Man, is, yeah. that, is that what he's called in those parts of, of uh, West Virginia, the Stone Man? In Appalachia, we have five Indian tribes, and three of the five had names for Bigfoot. And so I just chose Stone Man, which was an Iroquois uh, name for Bigfoot. Now, we're not sure whether it was because sometimes they're renowned to have thrown rocks at people, little pebbles, or sometimes, uh, you know, they travel up on the high in the rocks, up on the ridges. You know, some people call them ridge walkers and all this other stuff. So there's not really an explanation of why the Indian, the First Nation tribes did that. But, you know, that was an Indian name. Right. Um, the first thing that came to my mind is I've heard that a lot of times they'll roll around in the mud and then in the gravel and the rocks will stick to their fur. It's almost like a like a bulletproof vest if someone's, you know, throwing spears or launching yeah. arrows at them. So that's that's where the stone man came up for me yeah your new book though Appalachian Bigfoot yes uh, it's doing well and yes. uh, beyond the fray publishing keeps telling me how good it's doing <laughs> <laughs> so good. I mean Appalachia is a huge area yeah uh, I mean there's the Appalachian Trail that people walk what what's different about this book than the last one so the last book most of the reports I talked about and I gave were in West Virginia you know, of course, I spend a lot of my time in Ohio because I have a residence there as well, and I'm not very far from there. You know, I started doing too large of area, and I was I was in the woods all the time, but I would have cameras spread out around six hours, and I would be at different places each day of the week or each couple of days, and then on the weekends, I would try to get to a different area, and I felt like that I was really spread too thin. So then this last couple of years, I've started to get it down where I concentrated just in a more, an area where I can get to closer. And that's what I always tell everybody, you know, the first thing, if you want to do Bigfoot stuff is choose an area that you can get to continuously so that you can learn the wildlife and the animals. And so I've done a lot better that way instead of, you know, say Cranberry Wilderness Area in West Virginia is the largest wilderness area in the Eastern United States, meaning no roads, no trails, nothing. And it's in the middle of the Monongahela National Forest, which is 1.1 million acres. But I had two cameras in there 
you know, but then there'd be another area that's 50,000 acres and I'd have a camera or two in there. And it was like that. Well, now I may have one specific area and I may have four to 20 cameras in that one area. So I'm trying to, you know, get it down closer to that. But in terms of the book, what I did this time is I considered Appalachia, you know, we in 1967, we passed a lot of um, social bills in the United States, including Medicare and Medicaid. We had the war on poverty, and that was largely aimed at Appalachians. So I included the states in that 1967 bill. And then like with so many things in our government, because there was a lot of money there, we have states now that are considered Appalachia that don't have anything to do with Appalachia. And so I didn't include those states in terms of the reports. The only state that's completely in Appalachia is West Virginia. But like you said, it it goes from Maine all the way down to in uh, Georgia. And of course, there's that path that runs through there that's roughly 2,300 miles that people walk all the time. And so what I tried to do was to gather reports from each state, talk to whoever gave the report, talk to whoever uh, took the report, the researcher, whatever it happens to be, and tried to put down the things in common in this region of the country that make it such a popular and huge Bigfoot area. And then it was interesting in the first book, people really liked it and it sold well, but I always asked people, well, what would you like more of? I mean, what would you like to hear? One of the things was that they wanted more reports. And for me, it was like kind of like padding a book if you're putting these reports in there. But, and I assume that, you know, most of the people were reading most of the reports that were public. So this time I put the best of Appalachia reports, you know, the best reports that I could find. And many were reports that I had or the friends that gave me that were not public and tried to let people see that. And I chose the reports for different reasons, you know, things they not commonly see, but things that are common in Bigfoot world that maybe they could think about. Um, And I think that, you know, like I told you earlier, people are interested in Bigfoot, but then when it started staying high on the Amazon charts, I think that some of the people got curious as to why it was staying there for so long. And some of the people um, had messaged me, I was surprised that would be interested in a Bigfoot book. Um, But, you know, people were and and it's done well. I'm going to do a second edition of the first book, which I'm excited to do later this year, because... Um, now I think uh, I could do a better job at it, you know, now that I think I know better what people want. It was just the first time, you know, you, you really don't have any idea what you're doing. Uh, you know, you're just trying to put something together. And it's always interesting when you do it because, you know, some people will, um, when you're putting out your beliefs, there's obviously people that don't believe what you do or they have a different belief for what you, what you do. And it's always interesting to hear those people um, come around, you know, like the woo people, I love hearing those reports. I'm really interested in them and intrigued by them. I just haven't had the experience yet. Right. Some of them. But some of them I find very compelling and they're obviously very sincere. So, you know, I mean, something's happened to them that we can't explain, but I'm not sure how much of it is the psychological component um, or some type of cultural memory that we all have in our brain, you know, that in a certain aspect will come forward or a certain situation that we're put in, you know, things like that happen where people lose time or people. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you the number of times I've had somebody tell me that, um, you know, they were having a Bigfoot experience and the next time they looked at their clock, it was like several hours later or whatever it happens to be. And I think it's interesting, you know, from a psychological standpoint, I think that if somebody would make a study of the witnesses, it would be compelling. And I imagine when we do know that uh, Bigfoot is accepted from the community, there'll probably be some people that will study that aspect. Um, 
you know, come forward. Um, one of the things I think that is most interesting right now is I have been messing with this peanut butter thing. You know, there's some people across the country that have had luck with gifting. If you're familiar with gifting, okay. <laughs> Hands and, up. My hand goes yeah, up. So, you know, a lot of people do that. You know, they put food out and they have stuff disappear and you hear it commonly. And um, then there's people that leave things in the woods. And, you know, some of the things you find, I find silly because, you know, they're putting apples out, you know, of course, well, you know, deer and everything's eating an apple when they throw it out. But, you know, sometimes people have it up on trees. And um, I started putting these, um, the peanut butter out, you know, an investigator that was in Kentucky had had some luck with Nutella and he had gotten a, a print and he cast it in the Nutella. And then, you know, he's putting peanut butter out and he was telling me that they were only interested in peanut butter with red lids. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, does that have to do with, you know, red being maybe a color of fruit? I think he said yellow and red lid, uh, lids. That's what I, I thought, well, you know, I'll try this as good as any. And so, you know, Dollar General has red lid peanut butter for, you know, a bucket thing. And I probably have, I don't know, 30 or 40, 50 jars of peanut butter around these various places, but, you know, and they're just duct taped to a tree. And then I have a Sharpie line across that. So if I happen to be in that area, I can glance from a distance and see if something's moved it or messed with it. And, you know, a lot of the time I'm not in that an area very often, but um, it's interesting. I had a, a camera disappear and of course my cameras are all locked, but you know, people still find them occasionally, even in remote areas. And unfortunately people at times will take them and you hate it. Cause not only did you lose, I'm using largely reconics cameras, which are very expensive. And then I'm mixing in now for the first time, some Bushnell cameras, maybe eight or 10 of those. And I'm keeping those on one area just in case that there's a specific noise or frequency that one camera is putting off. I don't want to miss out because I'm not using something. So this camera disappeared and um, it had been about, uh, I don't know when this happened, maybe a year or two before that. And then several months before that, when I was in there, I had lost one of my peanut butters. And so, you know, I didn't see anything around and, you know, I just, every now and then I'd go back at the area and see if I could find it or something. Well, I was out hiking in the woods and I came down this trail and I was coming down the trail where my camera had been taken. And when I got to the tree where the camera was, my peanut butter, the lid was leaning up against the tree where my camera had been. So I lost the camera, you know, a year or two prior, four months prior to me being there this time, I lose the peanut butter, but then it shows up three quarters of a mile away up against the tree. Recently, I had, there's a friend of mine, Dr. Kenny Brown, which is a family doctor that's very involved with, especially long duration recording. And we'll be in some of the area, same areas. And so we'll share information and he'll tell me where, you know, hey, I heard a wood knock, you know, at 3.30 in the morning, it was in this area. And then I'll add it to the calendar or whatever. And uh, so there's this one area that was about 50 square miles. There's no trails in there, just paths that we follow and stuff. And so about two miles in, I had put this peanut butter up and he had texted me when he came out of the woods and he's like, is this your peanut butter, your peanut butter? So I'm like, yeah, but it was a couple miles away when he went in the woods, there was nothing there. But when he came out of the woods, that peanut butter was sitting on his, on the path he was following. When you leave your peanut butter out, do you take the lid off for them or do you just no, leave it's it? Sealed. I leave it completely sealed Okay, and I make sure the lid is tight and then it's duct taped to a tree. So it'd be hard to get off. 
you know, another right. critter, I'm going to get it off. And I didn't want to leave it like open or anything because I didn't want something to smell it and be interested in messing with it. But recently I had... Uh, he, his brother, the medical doctor's brother had been in the woods and he was way back in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, he came across one of your, your food traps. And sometimes I would have a camera aimed at him. Sometimes I would not, I'm just mixing it up. And so I did not have a camera on it. And um, so his brother took a picture and he sent it to me. And when he sent it to me, I was like, wait a second, because the peanut butter was sitting at the foot of the tree. So originally I had lost the peanut butter. And when I lost the peanut butter, I went and I, I put these colorful rocks duct taped to it, the same tree. But this time I put a, a camera on it. So a couple months later, his brother happens to go by that place, which is very remote. And only a couple of people a year would go by it. When he took the picture of that peanut butter was back at the foot of the tree. The peanut butter was gone, but then sometime the peanut butter reappears at the foot of the tree. So, you know, I'm not, it's not wooish in my mind. It's just that they're messing with my peanut butter, you know, or something is, and I, you know, I can't, I don't have another explanation on, you know, what would be interested in, you know, Dollar General peanut butter in the middle of the woods or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> You never know. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't. There's a lot of weird things in the bush. Yeah, um, you know, one of, there is. One of our researchers, uh, he's up in North Bay, Ontario, which is about four hours north of us. Um, he used to gift peanut butter all the time. He had one exact, you know, specific location. Every time he'd go back, the lid would be punched in. Like if someone took their thumb and, and jammed it in and then tore some of the pieces of plastic off and then scooped the peanut butter out. And, uh, you know, the holes that were punctured looked like huge thumbs or you know appendages and he thought well maybe like why aren't they twisting it off and so the next time he took it in uh he walked with the peanut butter jar in his hand and every 10 feet or so he'd screw the top off show it to the bush like and then put the lid back on and screw it back on wow and, and he kept doing it because he knew that they were watching him uh, or he suspected that they watched him. Uh, you know, he's, he's been going in this exact location for a decade. Um, he's had sightings, interactions, all sorts of stuff. So he puts the peanut butter down in his hidden little spot. He goes back the next week and the peanut butter jar is empty and the lid is back on. How and, cool. he thought, and he thought, isn't that neat? And like this place where he's gifting, there's no way, you know, it'd be a one in a hundred million chance that a, a person would find it. Right. You know, and why would someone just eat all the peanut butter, put the lid back on and put it right back in the, yeah. in the hidey hole? Unless, you know, and he doesn't tell anybody. So yeah. it's not like someone played a joke on him. And he, he continue, continues to do it to this day. Is he duct taping or just leaving it out there? Or how's he doing? Uh, he hangs it from a tree. Okay. Uh, sometimes he's got like a little mesh bag. Yeah. And uh, it's off the beaten path. Yeah. So it, it is interesting. But he the, that idea that he had to show them how to take the lid off and uh you know and what else would put the lid back on and lick the jar clean right i know it's so it's so, so hard to know. i know the gentleman i was talking to he told me that after a period of time the jar would show back up in the general area but would be clean with the lid on you know it's yeah. it's interesting how uh, you know i i think what's going to happen is at some point one of us is going to figure out exactly how it is to get the most interactions. And then once you're able to reproduce it, you know, then everybody can maybe come up with some evidence. That's like my cameras, you know, there's that primatologist, you know, they're looking for 
a new new monkey that's in South America somewhere or Africa and and she has 300 game cameras for two years and they have no pictures you know and they know that it exists but she had asked me um or asked a friend of mine she said well you know where is he putting all those cameras and he's like well you know crossings flats ridges saddles you know the typical stuff that all of us would use and she's like well you know how do you know that they travel there you know so the reality is you know they may only travel on the north face hillside 20 degrees up from the bottom you know whatever it happens to be you know something we haven't considered and so at some point i suspect that we'll be able if i can get a picture then i can get more than one picture you know once i can do it then i can tell other people and other people can try it as well there was a new study that just came out a couple of months ago. The Chinese did a study several years ago with game cameras. I believe they hear them. They're about 30 decibels. They can, um, they you know, can, so now, they can smell them too. Yeah, right? you know, of course, bears like, you know, black, black bears, black bears love, love the uh, something in the batteries. And, you know, well, that, what it is, rip. is it has formaldehyde in it. And to bears, formaldehyde smells like ants. So it mm. smells like an anthill and bears are intrigued by that. And so, you know, you have to off-gas your cameras. Like, you know, I don't know how long something in nature would smell. And I try to leave mine lay around for a while before I put them out. But, um, you know, at some point after you've been using them years, you would think that they wouldn't off-gas much. You know, I think it's, it's intriguing to do it, to try to come up with the different ideas, you know, using mirrors. Or I used ghillie suits and I put them in. I've used ladders. I mean, almost anything that you can imagine, you know, just trying to come up with always trying to evolve to come up with, you know, a solution to, you know, how to go about it. And now like I'm uh, yesterday, you know, I had two cameras out in this one Creek that I was walking down and they were placed based on wherever the Creek was the loudest, no other thing. You know, I was trying not to get too involved in my outdoorsman hunting type thing. And I was just choosing it based on wherever I thought it would block the noise, you know, and I was after that, but somebody will come up with it. Hopefully it'll be me and I can share. There you go. Russ, uh, you've probably heard thousands of stories from experiencers, uh, um, people that have seen these creatures, uh, had interactions with them. Can you share one story that really stands out that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck or, you know? You know, when I started doing this all these years ago, even though I had found tracks and had had that experience for something screaming at me, very monkey like that I knew was not a person, you know, cause we're standing there with pistols and uh, you know, and it was in a remote location off trail, you know, until you see something, it's really hard to believe that there could be something out there. So I had it in my mind that, you know, something could be out there. I really felt like it was more of a, you know, Pacific Northwest deal kind of thing. If they were going to exist, you know, cause so many of the reports came from out there. I mean, there's people like Peter Burns that, you know, has been around for years and was on TV and all this and read a couple of books. You know, he, he still believes that there's not any reliable Bigfoot reports in the Eastern United States. I mean, there's people, you know, that still find that. He also says that anybody that has more than one sighting is suspect. But nonetheless, I was, you know, pretty sure. And one of the very first reports I ever did was this state policeman and, um, you know, was in the mountains here of West Virginia. And I went down there and met him and, you know, him and his wife liked to ginseng hunt. And so in West Virginia, it's very common for people to ride four wheelers or side-by-sides. There was no side-by-sides just 10 years ago, largely. So 
they were riding a four wheeler and, and ginseng, you know, turns yellow in the seasons in the fall, but people like to go for, look for areas where it might be. And they were just out puttering around and they're riding on a right of way, uh, you know, where gas or electric lines, you guys have this just the same as us, right? Okay. So, you know, and I believe largely that that's a passageway that Bigfoot commonly uses. It largely stays away from houses. They're long, straight. They create an edge where a lot of wildlife likes to, you know, to, to be around like deer, which would be a primary food source. So he's driving on that. And then he kind of decides he just cuts off out of the blue in this area and he's puttering around. And he said he glanced and then he paused and he said, have you ever seen one? And I said, no. And he said, you know, keep in mind, this is a state, state cop. He's like, it's the size of a sheet of plywood. He said, people disappear all the time and you hear about it. And I'm not saying that it's them, but he said, you just can't imagine the size of this. And he's like, at first he thought it was a stump, just a fire burn stump. And he you know, didn't really look at it, he just glanced because his brain instantly characterized it as something he was used to seeing, you know, just like it would, I was talking about earlier with me. And so he sees what it is. He's only 20 yards from it. He has a pistol, but he says, you know, it was, it was enormous. And so he just hits reverse, reverse, reverse. And his wife says, what are you doing? He says, look, 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 look. And she starts screaming, oh my God, no, oh my God, no. And, you know, they tore out of there. They lived in the country, but after this, husband and wife both had to get counseling. They moved into the city. The wife had no desire to live in a country any longer. And the last time I talked to me, it told me that anytime in their neighborhood in town, when his wife hears something outside, she thinks of Bigfoot's in her neighborhood. You know, it, it traumatized her. And so I went down there with another investigator, Darren Pavarnik, and, you know, we're with these two state troopers and they both have their guns out. The guy that had the sighting is bawling and he's chain smoking. And I thought, you know, this dude saw something. And, you know, that was probably the one that really got me consumed with it. And since that time, you know, like I said, now I'm nearing probably, I don't know, 750 reports or so. I'd have to go back and look. And I think that there's people that have tried to have a hoax or, you know, in bad faith, maybe have tried to fool me, but the number is not very large that way. The people that are doing it, most of the people that uh, make an error, it's just, you know, a misidentification and what they saw, you know, they're not doing it on purpose, but every year, you know, you'll get several reports that seem infallible on the surface. The witness is exceptional. It's a trained observer. It's, you know, a game biologist. It's a state trooper. It's a deputy. It's a, you know, it's somebody that's trained not to be stressed. It's, you know, a doctor. It's one of those things. And they'll have a clear daytime sighting. And most of the things I look at each week when I see them or somebody calls me and I call somebody back or I'm reading them, you know, I'm thinking, eh, you know, it could be anything, who knows. But then you'll have this handful each year that really compel you. And, you know, keep in mind, so if just one of these stories, and that's just a handful in a couple of states, but there's, there's a history of it all across the United States and all the states with the exception of Hawaii. And if just one witness out of all those compelling ones, if you threw out, you know, I think the BFRO has like 5,000 credible reports at this point, you know, when they throw away all the junk ones and the fluff ones. And if you put all the other groups in there, there's probably, you know, six or 7,000 credible reports. But let's say that you threw even those out and only kept the top 100, which were people like, you know, I'm trying to think of the game warden that worked at Yellowstone that just retired, Action Jackson. You know, he was there all those years working in the most remote section of the United States. 
lo and behold, he had a Bigfoot sighting. You know, so when you have some of those people like that that are living in the wilderness, living in the woods, know all the animals, know all the game, and they have a clear daytime sighting very close, you know, it's hard to believe that they, you know, didn't see something. Or, you know, I had a guy uh, that I took a report from several years ago that was a police chief and had been a mayor, you know, and he didn't want anybody to know his name and he didn't want me to, I could put his report out, but I wasn't allowed to say who it was. But, you know, he just wanted me to know who he was so that I would take it seriously. You know, what do you do with those witnesses that, you know, they're sincere? I mean, they're not gaining anything by, uh, you know, trying to be on Finding Bigfoot or Expedition Bigfoot TV show. You know, they're compelling. All right, Russ, we, uh, we lost Dan there. But, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure where you got to. But how can people uh, get a hold of your books and uh, do you have a website? What can we tell the people? Yeah, I have a website. Uh, it's called The Bigfoot Doc. Dot com And they can go there if they have a report that they want to file, if they um, want to buy either of the books, they're on Amazon, but there's a link on there for them to be able to see it. And I'm always interested, you know, for people to reach out to me There's on this site. So they'll have a way for them to be able to uh, email me, love to hear what they think or suggestions if I decide to do another book, the things that they would enjoy hearing about. All right. Oh, Dan just texted me. He said his Wi-Fi went down. So <laughs> oh, there we go. it's always been Bigfoot. Okay. Now humans come in all sorts of different sizes. Apes come in all different sizes. Like, do they all have to have big feet? And I don't mean that as a joke. I just wonder, uh, you know, they must come in different sizes though, too. And like, uh, are there females? Are there, are there uh, young Bigfoots as well? Yeah, there are species. So they're large, they're small, they have juveniles, they have infants. Um, there's been footprints found. Um, the smallest or the smallest footprint that I've had from a witness is around four inches long. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's not very big. It's smaller than then. Right. Uh, but it's common for there to be sightings of different size Bigfoots. Okay. They can be similar in color in that usually under a microscope, the hairs will tend to have an orangish brown collar. You know, they can be almost any color like a coyote, meaning that people say uh, gray, black, brown, reddish brown, but most commonly it's black or a reddish brown color. Nests, caves, trees, what do you think that they live in or sleep in? You know, that's a good question. Uh, Historically, there's not evidence of them staying long-term in caves or coal mines, Places like that here in West Virginia, there's 10,000 mines that are unclaimed that are still open, that are in remote sections sometimes. We don't always have caves in parts. The part of the state I live in, we have a lot of rocks and rock overhangs, but we have no caves. Whereas, you know, so some places where Bigfoot is, there is no caves, no limestone in that particular area. Um, So there's evidence of them staying maybe for short-term shelter, that they would go in someplace just to get out of the weather or whatever it happens to be. But um, largely they'll stay in the open. Pine trees in the winter, large groups like that, usually pine trees are about 10 degrees warmer than the surrounding area. You know, it's also another area where, you know, they don't have to worry about leaving footprints. So a lot of times if I can find in the winter a south-facing hillside that is, you know, thousands of acres of pine trees, I'm curious to walk around in it. Right, right. And just having your experience of being in the woods for 
for quite a long time now. Uh, so that would give you an idea too of, of where you'd like to set those cameras up. Uh, yeah, you know, for instance, like here not long ago, I was walking up a hollow and when I'm walking, there's a creek in a hollow and up on the hillside on both sides of me, I can look at the trees and I can see that it had been clear cut by some state group. And based on the age of the trees, I could see it was around 20 years ago. And so that's really a, a secondary growth forest. It's prime, it's prime habitat for wildlife, deer, birds, turkeys, you know, all different kinds of stuff. And so I'm walking up this hollow and I'm seeing deer prints as I should going back and forth. But eventually when I get up to the hollow, there's a big pine grove and I stop seeing the deer tracks. And it makes me suspicious when I get into an area that looks like other areas, but I don't have the same game represented as I did. So that would probably be an area that, you know, I would certainly put a camera out or investigate. Rachel is our uh, resident medium. And uh, you've got something for Russ, do you? Oh, I just made a, a few hey, notes. Hi. <laughs> um, so what I, I wrote down a few times was like, good news, congrats. But it, I kind of feel like there's maybe a reward coming your way. Really? Yeah. Oh, or maybe nice. In, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Please keep me posted. Like yeah. that. Right? Thank you. Um, and I get that you just have this natural sense of being able to realize your dreams. And when you dream things, it's like they become reality. So um, with saying this in a different way, it's like when you follow your dreams, you're putting yourself in line with your purpose and then good things come from that because you're accomplishing your purpose. And then it's, it's like, okay, check Mark, check Mark. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. How cool. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also, I had to write down contract. I, there might be a contract coming for something that's coming up. So put that out there. And uh, yeah, I just, I just get from you that you, you have an overall feeling of being very blessed. You, you feel. Yeah. Good. That's, that's how I feel. <laughs> One more time of uh, where people can get your books and tell us uh, the titles of the books as well. And yeah, the, the first book is called tracking the stone man mm -hmm. and uh it's on amazon and on my website called the bigfoot doc the appalachian book is the book that's been number one for 16 weeks now great yeah i know it's crazy <laughs> bigfoot's popular apparently <laughs> yeah and uh, you know and it's on the website as well and it, you know there's some things on there talking about me and my past and what i believe and how i go about things but um you know, anybody that's considering reaching out, you know, I, I always want them to know that I'm going to treat them just like I do all my patients. Anything they share with me is in confidence and I'd never betray someone's, you know, what they share with me. Right. And that website one more time. The bigfootdoc.com. We thank you very much, Russ, for joining us. And hey, it's great to, great to talk to you guys. Rachel, thank you. Thank you. Phantom Faction Podcast, a podcast to educate, entertain, assist, and guide anyone involved or interested in the paranormal. To reach out to Phantom Faction, see our Facebook page or email us directly at phantomfaction at outlook.com.